0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson, recording remotely. This week on Counterspin, the astonishing cruelty and cravenness of a profit-driven healthcare system is on full display right now. As persistent as the problem is elite media's evident investment in brushing off efforts to do anything more than just document and lament it. We talked about that in March 2019 with Diane Archer, founder and former president of the Medicare Rights Center and president of Just Care USA. We'll hear that conversation again today. Also on the show, climate disruption, the catastrophes it's causing and will cause, is another area where corporate media use words like urgent and action, but anyone who acts urgently and specifically with regard to the fossil fuel industry, is dismissed as rabble-rousing and unserious. We talked about moving beyond agonizing to accountability with Sriram Madhusudanan, Deputy Campaigns Director at the group Corporate Accountability, in August of last year. We'll hear that conversation as well again today. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Before millions of Americans were unemployed, before COVID-19 began its sweep across the country and the world, healthcare was already a crisis, and the arguments against overhauling it were already visibly tired and specious. Here's Counterspin talking with Diane Archer in March of 2019. The March 11th Washington Post headline told readers that the Medicare for All bill recently introduced by Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal, quote, reflects influence of hardline progressive groups, close quote. Not quite a hit piece, but something very like it. The article said a slew of groups further to the left shaped the bill which would upend health coverage for tens of millions of Americans and cost many times more than the ACA, which is why the Post claims, quote, to some progressives, this is a step or steps too far, close quote. Words like upend and drastically do their work. And at one point, advocates on the left are counterposed with most health policy experts. Supporters of the Jayapal bill insist there's a groundswell of grassroots enthusiasm for overhauling the country's health care, the piece says, without reference to any of various polls that would indicate precisely that. The thing is, public support for a fundamental change in the way we do health care persists despite years of this sort of elite media treatment. Perhaps because for most Americans, health care is not a partisan debate, but a crisis. Joining us now to talk about how Medicare for All would respond to that crisis is Diane Archer, founder and former president of the Medicare Rights Center. She is president of Just Care USA. She joins us now by phone from here in New York. Welcome to Counterspin, Diane Archer. Glad to be here. Well, can we start with just some basic information on Jayapal and more than 100 co-sponsors Medicare for All Act? How, for instance, does it differ or is it different from the proposal Senator Bernie Sanders put forward last year?
1: It's quite similar to the Bernie Sanders bill. It is Medicare that we have today only improved and expanded to everyone. And it's improved by giving people vision, hearing, dental, which is in the Sanders bill, as well as home and community-based care and nursing home care, which is at the moment not included in the Sanders bill. But otherwise, it's very much the same.
0: Well, we know that the major theme of much media coverage has been, how would we pay for it? And people have pointed out a number of problems with that framing, including its selective use. But it also reads like half a ball score, you know, Yankees three, because you're not hearing compared to what? What's wrong with that way of putting things?
1: Well, a lot. Uh, We already spend more than Medicare for all would cost us right? We already pay too much for our health care. We pay twice as much per person as people in other wealthy countries. Our system is incredibly inefficient. There is hundreds of millions of dollars in administrative waste because of our commercial health insurance system, a lot of bureaucracy and profits that uh, Medicare for All takes out of our system. And there's a lot of excessive Pricing, pharmaceuticals in particular, cost twice as much here as they do in other countries. So just taking out the administrative waste and the waste-excessive drug prices will save us so much money that even by conservative estimates, Medicare for All will cost us $2 trillion less over a 10-year period covering everyone and expanding benefits. And I should add, allowing people to see the doctors they want to see and use the hospitals they want to use anywhere in the country. When it's presented as,
0: well, we're going to transfer the cost of health care to the federal government, for a lot of people, that just means, well, my taxes are going to go up. And so that's going to end up costing me more. But the the math you're doing takes that into account as well.
1: But- Today, working people pay a bunch of money in premiums and out-of-pocket for their commercial health insurance, as do their employers. And that money would go, instead of to a commercial insurer, to the federal government. Only it would be a little less than what, on average, people are paying. Businesses would save and individuals would save. So. Instead of the money going to the commercial insurer, it would go to the federal government. It's that simple.
0: Well, the Washington Post, that piece I was citing, says that the Jayapal bill would overhaul the system so dramatically that summoning broad public support seems like a tall order. We can address that separately. But their point is that's a big reason that some groups are proposing more modest coverage expansion, such as adding a Medicare-type public option plan to the marketplaces. What is the problem with what is presenting itself here and elsewhere as cooler heads prevailing, a, a more pragmatic approach?
1: I would argue that Medicare for some, as I call it, allowing some people to buy into some version of Medicare is less pragmatic. We have a broken healthcare care system, and we have two huge problems we need to address. We need to rein in the excessive costs we're paying for our health care, and we have to make sure that everybody in America can get the health care they need at a price they can afford. And Medicare for some does not address either of those two huge problems. Medicare for all in fact, does. It wanes in costs and it guarantees everybody in America health insurance. So Medicare for some is going to do very little to help the 29 million uninsured and the tens of millions more who are underinsured be able to afford their health care.
0: Yeah, it's not as though because it's a half measure, it would deliver half the benefit. But also, in reality, I would think that half measures really aren't They aren't easier cells politically. I think it's mainly pundits who think that the center of the road and, you know, don't really disrupt anything, that that's always going to be the most persuasive argument to people.
1: Well, I think we also know from the studies that we have a majority of Republicans as well as Democrats who support Medicare for all. And the more they understand about Medicare for all, it seems the more they support it. Right. The more they know that it involves the elimination of premiums and deductibles and coinsurance, that it adds important benefits that most people don't have today, like vision, hearing, dental, and long-term care. The more they see that it guarantees healthcare as a human right, the more support we have for it. And so I think a lot of this is helping people to understand what Medicare for All will do for them, and to understand as well that our commercial healthcare system will never be something that they can count on for affordable health care.
0: Yeah, I think that just knowing that if you or a family member got seriously ill or had an accident that you would quite possibly lose every penny you have, you know, and many that you don't, I think that has a a, a political impact. You know, like debt, it promotes a kind of caution and political quietude and even fear, and I, I can't help but think of all the energy that could be freed up if we took that worry from people, you know. Um, But the insurance industry isn't going to go gently into that good night. They are spending millions on lobbying and PR. And research that FAIR did some years back showed a lot of interlock among the boards of media corporations and insurance and pharmaceutical companies. They literally work together. As we go forward and as things heat up, What should we be on the lookout for as we see coverage of Medicare for All? What sorts of key countervailing bits of information would you have us sort of keep in the front of our mind?
1: I think that the first and most important point is that Medicare for All is really not a new concept in this country. We've had Medicare now for over 50 years, and it works really well. People love it. People look forward to turning 65 and being able to count on Medicare because it does work so well, and that Medicare for all is only an extension of Medicare, a better version of Medicare, a less costly version of Medicare that will allow people to sleep well at night knowing that they don't have to be worried about the cost of their care. And I think increasingly, Americans are seeing, if not themselves, the people around them struggling and making decisions no one should have to make between their health care and their kids' health care or their sister's health care. I mean, these are trade-offs that are unconscionable and unjust. Everybody in America should have the right to be able to see the doctors they need to see when they need to see them. And... That is just not the case today. And that will never be the case with commercial health insurance. Well, there are going to
0: be, as they say, losers. You know, there will be people and industries on the short end of a change like this. And I think we just have to expect that they will be putting arguments out uh, into the atmosphere that that suggest that there's something very wrong or very dangerous um, going on here. You know, we sort of have to be. I guess, prepared for that kind of disinformation, right?
1: And what's wrong and dangerous is is that there are so many people dying and suffering in this country, tens of thousands of people, because they can't get health care. And I think if people focused on the fact that this is going on to an unconscionable degree in the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the world, and other wealthy countries are able to deliver far better health care at half the cost, they'll realize that we can do it as well and that we can do it. And we don't need to rely on commercial insurance to get the health care we need. We can't rely on it because we can't get it through commercial health insurers.
0: Well, how can people get involved? I mean, we have legislation now to look at. Are there other things that folks can do to, to make themselves heard on this issue?
1: Always lots of things. Most importantly, they should be reaching out to their members of Congress. They should be asking for meetings, actually, with their representatives in Congress and telling them and sharing their stories with them about their struggles to get decent, affordable health care under our current system. It's broken, and they know it, and we all feel it and it's unjust, and there is an easy solution. The infrastructure is in place to expand Medicare to everyone. We know Medicare works. It's tried and true. People love it. We just now have to move our politicians to hear us and to do right by us.
0: We've been speaking with Diane Archer, president of Just Care USA. Find their work online at justcareusa.org. Archer's piece, Why Medicare for Some is the Wrong Idea, can be found on TheHill.com. Diane Archer, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you, Jeanine.
0: U.S. corporate media can write long, compelling, prize-winning articles about the ravages of climate disruption. But when it comes down to it, they'd rather issue vague calls to action than place blame and name names in a way that would actually be useful moving forward. We talked about that last August with Sri Ram Madhusudanant. Climate disruption presents a test for corporate news media. Will they act on the understanding that a conversation that doesn't acknowledge that unprecedented measures need to be taken is an irresponsibly detached conversation? Will they vigorously expose the corporate actors, the fossil fuel companies, and their executives who continue to dissimulate and deny? Or will they go on giving those that profit from harm-causing industries pride of place in the conversation about how to mitigate that harm? Corporate media's response to some promising state-level developments in climate action is not itself very promising. Our next guest will explain work you might not know about being done to push fossil fuel companies out of the way of climate justice solutions. Sriram Madhusudanan is Deputy Campaigns Director at the group Corporate Accountability. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Sri Madhusudanan.
2: Thank you so much, Janine. Glad to be here.
0: Well, I was alluding to the Supreme Court decision earlier this year that cleared the way for Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey to pursue her investigation of ExxonMobil about what it knew about climate change and when it knew it, essentially. It was on the wires, AP and Reuters, but it didn't get the kind of major attention you would hope. But before you talk about that, The background for such an investigation, the need for it, is that the fossil fuel industry is just vigorous in doing whatever it takes to resist change. They're really quite aggressive and proactive, you might say.
2: Absolutely. You know, I think this is the story we've seen play out over decades, really, when we now see the internal documents that have come to light. For example, showing that Exxon, as far back as the 1960s, really knew the extent to which climate change was going to be the path that we were on, the, the modern kind of climate disruption that we're seeing almost a, a climate disaster happen every week, I believe, according to a recent UN report. So it is very telling that this is the path. That the fossil fuel industry has been on for so long. And when faced with a choice of doing a better thing in terms of advancing a just transition or choosing a path of climate denial and political manipulation, the industry quite simply chose to protect billions and billions of dollars a year in its own profit.
0: And this was part of that. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey was investigating ExxonMobil. So as part of their strategy, they sued her. And that's the case that the Supreme Court refused to hear?
2: That's right, yes. So the Supreme Court really refused to hear Exxon's bid for dismissal on the Massachusetts AG case. And, you know, just to back up for a second, Exxon has really fought tooth and nail against every move to hold it legally liable, countersuing up a storm, not just with the Massachusetts Attorney General investigation, but a number of different instances. And this is quite simply a tactic of delay and intimidation and an attempt to use their considerable resources to delay, distract, and fundamentally to obstruct this process.
0: Well, Healy said that she thought the Supreme Court ruling might put an end to what she called Exxon's scorched earth campaign to block these kinds of investigations. As you're intimating, this ruling, it's heartening not only for Massachusetts, though. Massachusetts is not alone in this sort of investigation.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is a big win for other states, cities, and communities who want to hold Exxon accountable. We have an ongoing investigation and lawsuit from Attorney General James now in New York State. um, And there are a number of cities that are taking the fossil fuel industry to court. And, you know, this decision really does clear the way for Healy's investigation into what Exxon has known for over 50 years about climate change and brings us one step closer to finding out exactly what they knew and and what they did to cover it up. So it's
0: having some echo effect in some sense. It was a state attorney general that brought the big lawsuit or one of them that became a biggest lawsuit against big tobacco, was
2: it not? Yes, and there's absolutely a number of parallels to the history we saw with attorney general investigations into the tobacco industry. One, for example, is that as we saw with the tobacco aging investigations, part of the settlement in the U.S., particularly from Minnesota state attorney general, was to bring to light and release a trove of internal documents that really illustrated the true story of what the industry had been doing to cover up what it knew about the addictive nature of nicotine and cigarettes. And similarly, we can see uh, really to what extent Exxon and others hid from the public the causes and severity of the climate crisis. And I think more importantly, when those tobacco documents were released and the truth of what the industry did was revealed, it really ushered in a whole new era of accountability and legislation to hold the industry accountable. And at the international level, at the UN, at, at the state and local level here in the US, people are similarly demanding accountability for the fossil fuel industry. And this is exactly the kinds of investigation and moves to hold the industry accountable and liable for its actions that we need in this moment.
0: Yeah, documents make things harder to deny, even if they're things that, you know, seem like they're going on in broad daylight Uh, anyway. Documentation is always important. And fossil fuel companies are kind of a big PR operation. You know, they do their own research. They offer these market-based solutions. And for corporate media, that's enough cover. You know, oh, this didn't come from BP. It came from the Energy Futures Institute, you know, or whatever, horse hockey, you know, to present that as like a valid position in a debate. You know, some people say X, Y, or Z. And I kind of wonder what it will take for extractive industry to be presented that way in the media instead of this kind of credulity that we see. You know, I feel like media has to take a turn In the same way that it did with tobacco, in terms of the way it presents these corporate actors.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Media has an incredibly important role to play in telling this story and it shouldn't be understated. You know, we we cannot talk about climate change enough and it's important that when we talk about it we tell the story in the right way. So, to one foreground the fact that the industry has known about the severity of climate change for decades. I mean, now I mentioned as far back as the 1960s, but a recent document came to light within this initial trove of documents from Exxon that showed that in the 1980s, they knew and had predicted with a fair degree of accuracy what the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere would be in 2019. And that's just astounding to think that before I was born, for example, that Exxon had known exactly what it was doing if it kept on this path of extractive economy and of climate disruption. And so media has an absolutely critical role to play in foregrounding who was responsible and that where we are today in a moment of upheaval and and climate disruption was was also a deliberate choice on the part of a number of incredibly powerful entities, corporations, and CEOs at the helms of those entities as well.
0: Yeah, you can't keep bringing these folks forward as sort of credible actors once you know that dissimulation has been part of their modus operandi, it seems to me. It should affect the way they're treated as sources on these stories.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And then to take it one step further, to really address and to have a much more skeptical eye to the trade associations, which you mentioned earlier, that are driving their agenda, you know, seemingly under the guise of being nonprofits or acting in the public interest, simply putting forward, quote-unquote, innovative solutions, when in fact they were set up for very intentional purposes by the industry to advance an industry driven agenda and to seed these false market-based solutions that at the end of the day don't do anything to actually shift the industry's business model, which is fundamentally at odds with the direction we need to go as a collective species on this planet if if we're going to weather the storm, so to say.
0: Well, a recent piece by your corporate accountability colleague, Patty Lynn, that I saw on Truthout reminded us that Under today's global power structures, the people who will be the most affected are the same ones who are currently experiencing the harshest effects of climate change. No wonder, then, that women, communities of color, communities in the global south, youth, low-income communities, and indigenous communities around the world have been developing just climate solutions that will address this crisis. What we need now is to move the fossil fuel industry and its backers out of the way so these solutions can be implemented. There really isn't a scientific, or even an environmental response to climate disruption that is not a political response to current relationships of power, is there really?
2: You know, that's absolutely right. And I think it's a really critical point to bear that there are very real solutions to addressing the climate crisis, and they're being deployed by people around the world and in the U.S. most impacted by this crisis today. Solutions like energy democracy, agroecological practices, ecological restoration to recover natural carbon sinks. And just in, in a moment, if you imagine where we could be today in implementing these kinds of climate solutions, if the industry had not for so long really stood in the way. is It's damning when you think about it from that perspective. But absolutely what's needed in this moment is for the industry to, to get out of the way and for us to make sure that these real solutions that are already being deployed in communities around the world are given the the center of focus and the scale that they need in order to really be the focus of a global response to this crisis.
0: We've been speaking with Shri Ram Matusudanan, Deputy Campaigns Director at the group Corporate Accountability. You can find their work online at corporateaccountability.org. Sri Ramadusudan, thanks so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. That was Sri Madhusudan, and before that, Diane Archer, both recorded in 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.